Hey everybody, uh, my name is Scott, and uh, like Russ, I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, my privilege to get to open the scriptures with you today. Uh, before before I do that, uh, just a just a few quick announcements. One of which is to please pass the black notebook uh, down. Fill out your information there. It helps us know who was here. It also helps us know as you share what your needs uh, are, uh, what those needs are, so we can respond. So so feel free to write us any note that you want for our uh, able staff, and we'll we'll respond to you. So. Pass that on and uh, appreciate that. So there are two featured announcements today. And uh, one is that, uh, the first one is a reminder that uh, CPC Connect groups, which are small groups that meet in homes and in restaurants and apartments uh, and other places around Nashville. There are also some that meet on Sunday mornings between the services here uh, at CPC Central uh, for those who like the childcare option. Um, uh, but they are, um, they are relaunching this month. We, we, we sort of relaunch Connect Groups twice a year, in January and also in September. Uh, and, uh, you know, CPC has several pathways into what we call spiritual friendship, uh, meaningful, you know, life-giving, transparent, Christ-centered friendship with others in the community here. Uh, that could take place in core communities and core classes. It could take place in missional communities. It could take place serving through one of the church programs. Uh, but connect groups are really the best and, 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 and most really sustainable and strong ways to connect with other people. Uh, and so, uh, want to invite you to take a look in your bulletin uh, if you're interested in exploring that, maybe checking out a few groups, maybe starting a group. Uh, it's all there, uh, and you can register today, and somebody will reach out to you. And so the second um, announcement today, which is the last one, is that CPC Women uh, is sponsoring their third citywide forum. That's one of the things we do as CPC is we do public forums on, on issues and, and concerns that, that the whole world and the whole culture cares about. And so the next one for CPC Women is Tuesday night, February the 7th, and the subject is Refugees, Nashville as Home. Not sure if you're aware, but there are nearly 60,000 refugees living in Nashville, and uh, our church has several partnerships and, and also missional communities and other ways of involvement with, with the different refugee communities here in Nashville. Uh, people out of our own community at Christ Press who are dedicated to doing justly, loving mercy uh, toward uh, the underdog, toward those who, who struggle and, and you know, need others to, to come in and walk alongside them as they transition to new life in a foreign land. Uh, so, you know, CPC Women's Forums are known for um, excellent speakers, and uh, you won't want to miss this if you're a woman. It is exclusive, guys. Sorry about that. Um, you can register, in, uh, and all the details for that are in your bulletin. So, those things being said, uh, we're, we're continuing our Sermon on the Mount series this morning, and uh, today we're looking at the seventh beatitude, uh, and that is from Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, and I'll go ahead and read that. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Okay, so the word peace is a central word, especially to the Jewish 
story. Uh, and remember, Matthew is, is the gospel that is uh, chiefly targeted toward Jewish men, women, and children from the first century gospel uh, documents. And, uh, you know, in the, in the New Testament Greek, the word is irene. In the Old Testament Hebrew, it's the more familiar word shalom or peace. Now, to us, when we think about peace, we think about an inner feeling of calm. We think about, um, you know, inner tranquility, which could certainly be a byproduct of the kind of peace that the Bible talks about. But the kind of peace that they were thinking about as Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount and said, blessed are the peacemakers, was what they knew as shalom. And uh, the Reformed theologian Cornelius Plantinga helps us understand what the Jewish person in the first century would be thinking about this word peace. When he says, the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets called shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. The way things ought to be. A a recovery, so to speak, of that Edenic existence that was enjoyed by Adam and Eve before sin and corruption came in and ruined everything. A restoration and recovery of that. So when we every now and then in our services pray together, um, you know, what history refers to as the prayer of St. Francis that starts, Lord, make us instruments of your peace. We're talking about becoming contributors to this kind of world that planting had just described for us. It has implications spiritually in in our relationship with God. It has implications socially in our relationships with one another and in our relationships with the people outside of the church. And it has implications culturally, and and that will be covered chiefly next week, the cultural aspect when when, uh, we do the sermon, uh, you know, on salt, light, and the city on a hill. But today I want to zero in on what peace looks like spiritually in our relationship with God and socially in our relationship with other human beings. So, Let's talk first about spiritual peace. Peacemakers are at peace with God. Not because chiefly they've made peace with God, but because God has made peace with them through the cross of Jesus. And so the implicit assumption that peace has been made is that there was a pre-existing war and hostility going on between God and And every human heart. Everyone is born, the scriptures tell us, Jesus is explicit about this, the apostles are explicit about this, everyone is born in a condition of enmity toward God, an inherent hostility. And what is the proof of this? Uh, Tim Keller puts it this way, when, 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 when he is attempting to answer the question, what is the proof of this? He says, the only time that God ever became vulnerable to us The only time God ever became weak, the only time God ever became touchable, we killed him. Jonathan Edwards, um, by consensus of 
the world's historians, particularly here in the West, here in the United States, uh, and, and, and intellectuals, has been identified as the first American intellectual. Uh, you may not know that, that Jonathan Edwards' remains uh, are buried on the campus of Princeton University, where he was um, uh, either the first or second president of Princeton. Uh, some still today, uh, including Encyclopedia Britannica, will say that Jonathan Edwards is the brightest mind to ever step foot on American soil. He was also a missionary. He was also a pastor who wrote about the religious affections and charity and its fruits and, and, and other uh, magnificent works. But one of the essays that Jonathan Edwards wrote uh, was titled this, Men, Naturally God's Enemies. And what Edwards uh, unpacks in that essay is this, that we are at enmity with God intellectually, emotionally, and volitionally. And when he says that we're at enmity with God intellectually, what, what he is saying is that we are not bought in to what Isaiah 55 says, that God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts and that God's ways are higher than our ways, that God knows us and what we need better than we know ourselves, that God loves us better than we love ourselves. We're not bought into that. And how is that manifest? In, in, in many, many ways. But here's how it, it's chiefly manifest, and we can diagnose the, the intellectual hostility that we have. We say, I believe the Bible, but what we really mean is I believe the parts that I agree with. When we say, I believe the Bible, but what we really mean deep down is I believe the parts that I agree with, is that we are at enmity with God, that we want God to be our consultant and our advisor, but we don't want Him to be our king or our master. And, and, and to whatever degree, we, we, we are not open to God being our king and our master in whatever place or crevice in our lives and our hearts and our thoughts and our words and our actions, that we are not ready to surrender to God, not as our consultant, not as our advisor, but as our master, the boss of us, is the degree to which we are hostile to Him intellectually. Real-time example is uh, a number of popular books that have emerged uh, particularly here in the West, particularly in the United States, um, which are encouraging Christians to reconsider and rethink long-held, historic, biblically-informed, biblically-based, biblically-driven, orthodox positions on issues about which the culture is in disagreement with Scripture, one of which is sexuality, which is a very sensitive topic. It's a very, um, it's very sensitive. But biblically, from the very beginning to the very end, God's vision for human flourishing sexually is for, you know, just like fire, the gift of sex to be contained so that it doesn't create a wildfire and leave scars. And, 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 and that container is a lifelong covenant marriage relationship between one man and one woman. Biblically, historically, based on the Scripture, that's what the church has believed universally, all times, all places, all ages, except for now. All sorts of writings coming out in the form of books, challenging that. 
And, and, and the rationale is, uh, let's take same-sex relationships, for example. The rationale is, well, Jesus never spoke about it, so it must not be that big of a deal. But the problem with that is Moses spoke about it and Paul spoke about it multiple times, always with a warning. And if Moses spoke about it and if Paul spoke about it, Jesus spoke about it. Because all the Bible is supposed to be in red letters. Because as Luke 24 reminds us, all the Bible is about Jesus, starting with Moses and the prophets and, and, and on to the end. And so, so this creates a clash between culture, between the way we want things to be, and the way that God says things are in terms of human flourishing in the realm of sexuality. And what, what we're told here is that, that, that you need to know the Scriptures well enough so that, that, that you know the authentic thing so well that you can spot a counterfeit like that. But there are books and writers that are discipling many, 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 many people in our churches away from the historic Orthodox biblical teaching on this subject because of the culture clash. You know, Rosaria Butterfield um, you know, is a, a woman who uh, was a Syracuse professor, an academic, an intellect, uh, uh, you know, was in a relationship for, for, for many years with, with, with another woman. And along the way, she got converted to Christ, got converted to, God, to, to the gospel, ceased looking to Jesus to be a consultant and an advisor, and, and, and began the real hard, really hard, you know, per, at personal cost, act of surrender to Jesus as king. And, and, and received healing, you know, of her sexuality in, in ways that others among us need to seek healing of our materialism and our greed and our gluttony and our, our anger and rage impulses and so on. Everybody has something to repent of. Everybody has something to surrender, right? But here's what Rosaria Butterfield said about the popular books that are coming out challenging biblical orthodoxy in the name of Christ, because Jesus didn't say it, because Jesus didn't talk about it. Well, yes, He did. And here's what Rosaria Butterfield says, when we bless relationship that, relationships that God calls sin, we act as though we think ourselves to be more merciful than God is. And that's a dangerous place to be. Another historic orthodox truth, biblical truth, that's being challenged in, in, in modern popular books, marketed to the church, marketed to Christians, is the doc doctrines of exclusivity and judgment. Very hard truths, right? Very hard to, to, to say it publicly. Jesus said that nobody comes to the Father except through Him. Yeah. Sometimes I'd rather stay home, poke myself in the leg with an ice pick than say that publicly in front of a couple thousand people on a Sunday. And yet, this is what He said not to hold us down, but to set us free. And that's where we miss it. We miss the motivations of God in His exclusive statements. And we also miss that, that His exclusivity is also the most wildly inclusive movement that, that the world has ever known. Every nation, every tribe, every tongue. Christianity is this singular religion that's been able to transcend geography, culture, socioeconomics, politics, you fill in the blank. You look at the other world religions, each and every one of them is, is, is culturally contained. Islam in the Middle East, Hinduism in India and such. And, you know, there, there's a little bit of scattering, but nothing is pervasive in every culture as the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a reason for that. It's universally applicable. It's wildly inclusive. 
The only exclusivity in the kingdom is, is self-exclusion when, when, when we refuse to confess that Jesus is Lord and, and bow the knee to him. And, and, and this is interesting because on the one hand with the sexuality conversation, the rationale is used, well, Jesus never talked about it. And then you get to the hell and judgment conversation. Well, Jesus is a God of love. My Jesus you know, wouldn't, wouldn't you know, be about hell and judgment. But the problem with that is Jesus talked about hell and judgment more than he talked about heaven, more than he talked about love. And so you can't, you can't change your rationale depending on what the subject matter is, or can you? It's all red letter. Intellectually, we're hostile toward God. That's why we write these books, and that's why we read them. We're looking for an answer other than the clear ones that God's given us in His Word. That means we're angry at Him, we're hostile, we're at war with our Maker, with our Designer, who knows us better than we know ourselves and who loves us better than we love ourselves. But then there's an emotional hostility that Edwards talks about. This is where we place conditions on our worship. You know, the psalmist says, you know, eternal pleasures, Lord, are at your right hand. That is where I can find emotional satisfaction, at your right hand. Or as Augustine prayed, you know, our hearts are restless, O God, until they find their rest in you and in you alone. Or as John Piper has more recently sort of rewritten the answer to the the first question of the the Westminster Shorter Catechism, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end, according to Piper, is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever, enjoying Him. But our enmity toward God, our emotional enmity toward God shows up when Gollum's ring is threatened, when whatever it is that we're plugging our emotional umbilical cord into becomes threatened or or, or taken away from us. It it exposes our, our supreme love for the gift over our love for the giver. You have this picture with Job and and Job's wife. They, 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 They both experience just insurmountable in many ways devastation in their lives, and so much is taken away from them. And their impulse responses, Job to the same circumstances, Blessed be the name of the Lord. I don't understand this. And, you know, we, the, the book unfolds and Job fights with God and Job wrestles. And it's not this sort of pie in the sky, happy, clappy, things aren't hard. He is gutting it out, holding on to it, like throwing dishes at God. And yet still holding on to, to, to the belief that God loves Job more than Job loves Job. And that God knows Job more than Job knows Job. But, it, but on the, the flip side, in, in, in response to the same circumstances, Job, Job's wife says, curse God and die. There are conditions on her worship. You know, whatever it is that, that our hearts can't let go of, career, status, reputation, money, materialism, greed, uncontrollable appetites, and so on, when our umbilical cords emotionally are plugged into these things, it, it's a sign of hostility, Edward says, toward our Creator. And then there's the volitional hostility. You know, I was having a conversation some time back with a, a man who, who identified as an atheist, and, and he was an atheist, though, that was curiously angry at God. And uh, I said, look, how, how can you be angry at a God who doesn't exist? Uh, help me understand this. And I, I wasn't being snarky. I really wasn't trying to be sarcastic. I was really, truly trying to understand. And by the way, don't insult people who don't believe like you do. Like, enter in with compassion. Enter in with a sincere effort to understand where they're coming from and why and what the story is. Here was his story. I want to become a Christian, 
the loveliest people in my life, they're all Christians. The most coherent worldview that I've ever read, and I've read all the philosophies and all the religions, is the Christian worldview, the most coherent one that exists. But I cannot be a Christian because I know that the moment I become a Christian, I will have to start forgiving my father for the things that he did to me. Always a story. I was listening to a, a friend of mine who's a pastor. I do some, I listen to podcasts when I work out to distract myself from the pain I'm inflicting on myself. And the, the pastor was telling me about, telling me through his sermon um, in my earphones, um, such a personal conversation, but, but, but um, he was talking about a, a season of his ministry where he, he started to preach on the book of Amos. And the book of Amos is the justice book. It's the book that rich folk don't like to hear. It says that if you're not with the poor, you're not with Jesus, no matter what you say or what you think or what you sing. If your life does not include dedication to the underdog in tangible, practical ways, I am not listening when you sing to me. I'm not listening. And I'm not responding to your prayers. Because if you're against the poor, you're against your maker. Because the same one who made you made them. And so he started, pre and I'm only saying it in this way because Amos is that bold. He is that strong. He is that in your face. And so there's no other way to preach it except the way that it actually reads. But this pastor said that, that a very well-known author with, with a lot of resources after two or three or four weeks of Amos said, look, pastor, I can't take it anymore. You're messing with my money and you're messing with my comfort. I'm out of here. Those were the precise words. You're messing with my money and my comfort and I like my money and I like my comfort. I can't do this anymore. Enmity. Whenever Jesus is an advisor or a consultant functionally to us, we are his enemies until he becomes our king. You know, C.S. Lewis sort of diagnoses this in the weight of glory when he says our desires are too weak, and that's the problem. That's why we're enemies with God. Our desires are too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition while infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So how do we know that the, 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 that the white flag has been raised? How do we know that the hostility is over, that the dividing wall has been torn down by the cross? It's right there in Ephesians 2.14. As soon as this text is music to your ears, you know that, 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 that you're either on your way to having peace with God or you've already entered into it. Jesus is, it says, our peace. Because he is the one who's broken down the wall of hostility between God and our own hostility toward God. And how does he do this? He becomes our surrogate in judgment. He becomes our surrogate by standing in our place on the cross, bearing the hostility of God, the rightful hostility of God toward our hostility toward Him intellectually, emotionally, and volitionally. Jesus bearing it all so that He could then turn around and say to us, blessed are the peacemakers, 
For they shall be called sons of God. By the way, that is, that is not a gender-insensitive statement any more than, than, guys, you're part of the bride of Christ. You know, Jesus gives us all kinds of metaphors to show us the, the multifaceted ways in which he loves us. The son was a place of status in, in that day and age especially. Union with Christ is what happens when, 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 when peace is made with him by his initiative such that everything that was said about Jesus in his baptism, the water that, that, that went over Jesus, even though he had no need to be cleansed, and yet he identifies with us in our sinful, broken condition by being baptized anyway, that water represents our cleansing, and the benediction, the blessing pronounced over Jesus from heaven, from the Holy Spirit, audibly in that moment when he was baptized in the river, this is my beloved Son, and on him my favor rests. Guess what? If you have peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ, that is the same blessing that God pronounces over you. You are no less beloved than Jesus is in the sight of God. Everything that's true of Jesus is true of you positionally in the sight of God. If you have union with Christ through belief in the cross and all that it was there to accomplish. Brennan Manning puts it this way, define yourself radically as one who is beloved by God. Every other identity is an illusion. When you become convinced of this, that this is your identity, you are the beloved of God, that your sins aren't going to be held against you because they were already held against Jesus, your intellectual, emotional, and volitional hostility toward God will gradually begin to be replaced by surrender to the reality that God knows and loves you more than you know and love you. And how do you know you're on board with Him? How do you know you're at peace with Him? Your, your deepest, inmost desire is to begin treating Him as King and Master and no longer as consultant and advisor that you can feel free to write off. You're no longer saying or thinking, I believe the Bible, except, you know, what that really means is I believe the parts that I agree with. You, you, that you're done with that. You know, your heart starts to, to resonate with Ezekiel. You know, in Ezekiel chapter 3, God gives him a scroll which represents the, the hard message that he's supposed to preach of judgment to the rebellious house of Israel. And it says that after, after God, you know, gave me that, that scroll with all these words of judgment, he told me to put the scroll in my mouth and eat it. And I did, and it tasted like honey. Even the hard stuff tasted like honey. Furthest thing in Ezekiel's mind was writing it off because he, didn't, he wasn't feeling it. You know, David is another one, rebuked by the law of God for his infidelity and for his hostility toward his own neighbor and friend through murder and adultery. That same David writes these words in Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. You know, he wants to be the boss of you, not to hold you down, but to set you free. If you're at peace with God, you understand that. But then there's social peace. Peacemakers pursue shalom with others. You know, one commentary said this, if you've made peace with God, then you can go out and make peace with everybody else. Or as Paul says in Romans 12, as far as it depends on you, make every effort to be at peace with all people. And this includes first and foremost inside the church of Jesus Christ. You know, Galatians, you know, talking about being sons of God, Galatians is, is really known as the sonship identity letter. Like, if you want to understand yourself as a child of God, start with Galatians. 
But one of the major themes of Galatians is because God has loved all of us, transcultural, trans-economic, trans-political, trans-everything that you could imagine. Since God has loved all of us, it is now upon us to love one another across the line of different, lines of difference. And he puts Jews and Gentiles in there as, 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 as a picture of that as well as others. You know, chapter 3, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. You all belong, in other words. And in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, meaning this, that neither your traditions nor your politics nor your race should divide you anymore. And he goes on to say, there is neither slave nor free, meaning that your power dynamics and your economic situations should no longer divide you in the body of Christ. And then he goes on to say there's no longer male or female. That means your gender should not become a hierarchy. Everybody's equal under the cross of Christ. The church should be the prototypical place on earth, in other words, where women experience equal honor, respect, and dignity as the men. I mean, just look at the way that Jesus treated women, and and you'll get that picture very quickly in a very misogynistic culture back then. Class, income, power dynamics, irrelevant inside the church. Irrelevant. We should be striving for scenarios in which CEOs inside the church are in submission to their middle managers who serve as their elders, and stage musicians who are in submission to their roadies who serve as their elders because of their exemplary character and the fruit of the Spirit in their lives, because these hierarchies do not exist inside the church of Jesus Christ. Name-dropping, stupid inside the body of Christ. It's a language of fools to drop names as if that elevates your identity somehow and elevates your status. It diminishes it because you're not understanding. We're all one and we're all equal in Christ. Politics can't divide you anymore. You're forbidden to divide inside the church over politics. You're forbidden inside the church to divide over race. If you, if you weren't here to, uh, last Sunday night to hear Pastor Ronnie Mitchell, African-American pastor, dear friend of mine, preach the message that he did at our unity service last Sunday. I'm just going to give you a little teaser, and hopefully it compels you to go to the website and listen to the whole thing or to the podcast. Here's one of the things he said. God is not white. God is right. God is not black. God is all that. God is not brown, but God gets around. The God that made us, the God that saved us, very well understands diversity. I know this because I've seen God go into the laboratory of creation, take a black cow, let it eat green grass, produce white milk, churn up yellow butter, and give off red meat. I have also seen God, I have also seen God in his chemical laboratory of redemption, where he took, listen, he's preaching to about 90% white people in this moment. I've also seen God in his chemical laboratory of redemption where he took my black soul, dipped it in red blood, and I came out whiter than snow. If that's not a statement of unity under the gospel, I don't know what is. You know, this is the man who calls me his brother from another mother. Our life experience, our upbringing, radically different. Our skin color, the part of town we live in, the people among whom we minister to, radically different in many ways and yet radically the same at the same time. 
But it's not just in the church, it's also out in the world where we as the people of God are to be truly counterculture, pursuing peace with all people, including the opponents of Christianity, including those who persecute you even, which is going to be our last beatitude. You know, sometimes when, when you have peace with God, there will be some people who want to declare war on you because they don't like your views. And yet, even there, be at peace as far as it depends on you with all people of all people. If we know ourselves as those who were once hostile to God, once God's enemies, the cause of the division between heaven and earth, between holiness and sinfulness, between perfection and brokenness, and, and, and God, we know ourselves as those who have been, been pursued for peace with God, then that means we of all people out in the world should be the least offensive and the least offendable people in the world, anywhere. One of my highlights in 2016, and then I'll take us to the table, was I got to speak at the staff retreat for the Village Church, uh, which is a, a church in, it's an Acts 29 church in, um, in Dallas, Texas. And their, their pastor, who's also a friend of mine, uh, a guy named Matt Chandler, Matt says this, Love your enemies with the goal that you will have no enemies. Jesus has given us the perfect reason for that. Because he loved us, all of us, when we were his enemies, so that he would have no enemies among us. So what better place than the table of grace, than the table of peace, to revisit our sonship, to renew our pledge to pursue peace inside the kingdom of God and outside in the world. He himself, Jesus, is our peace. And before Jesus could become our best friend, he had to first become our best enemy. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still hostile, intellectually, emotionally, volitionally, while we were still his declared enemies, while we were still sinners, it says, that is when Christ gave his life for us. That's when Christ died for us. So around the table, this is going to be our opportunity to receive the peace of God in the form of his body and his blood given for us. But here's, by the way, if you're new here, if you're still getting familiar with, with Christ's prayers, you're going to probably notice that, that when you're not at the table, there's going to be a lot of bustling going around, around, on around you. There are going to be people walking across the sanctuary, you know, connecting with each other. There might be three or four uh, people invading your personal space, introducing themselves to you if, if you haven't met them. That's by design. You know, in the New Testament, they, they did the Lord's Supper in the context of a love feast, a lot like a, a Thanksgiving meal with a lot of laughter, also a lot of tears and family dysfunction. It was all there. So we receive his peace at the table, and then we go and pass his peace to one another. Be intentional in whatever conversations you have in these next moments throughout the sanctuary. And so as the servers come forward, as the children return to us, uh, let's turn our eyes and our hearts to the screen. And there we will join millions of believers around the world today who are praying this very same prayer, which is a prayer for the third Sunday after the Epiphany. Give us grace, O Lord, to answer readily the call of our Savior Jesus Christ 
and proclaim to all people the good news of his salvation, that we and the whole world may perceive the glory of his marvelous works, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.